Hey there, I'm Adam Rissman, and welcome to Inside Intercom. This week's guest is one of my all-time favorites that we've had on the show, so we're just going to get right into it. In this episode, joined in conversation by Intercom's own VP of Engineering, Dara Curran, is the one and only Nick Caldwell, who is the VP of Engineering over at Reddit. Nick came to Reddit by way of Microsoft, where in 13 years, he went from just an intern in the company's natural language group to general manager of Power BI. And Power BI, if you don't know, is Microsoft's premier business intelligence suite. While running things over at Power BI, Nick actually oversaw a team of 300 engineers and PMs, so he really does know a thing or two about operating a team at scale. When he arrived at Reddit back in October 2016, scaling the team was one of his top priorities. Nick inherited a group of 35 engineers and quickly built that team out to what is now more than 170. And he was refreshingly candid with Dara about some of the tough lessons he learned along the way. Dara and Nick also get into why Nick advocates so hard for young engineers to find sponsors and how that differs from mentorship, Nick's process for identifying potential managers within your org. And they also talk about DevColor, a really great organization for which Nick sits on the board that empowers people of color and software engineering to help one another and ultimately grow into industry leaders. It's a really, really fascinating chat, and we'll get into it as soon as I thank you, our listeners, for two things. First of all, Inside Intercom saw its one millionth download last week, so clearly a few of you have heeded my weekly plea to subscribe to the show on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. But wherever you get the show, thank you so much for listening. Secondly, after 127 episodes now of Inside Intercom, this is my final episode as the show's presenter. So whether this is your first listen or if you're 127th, sincerely, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's been an amazing run of lessons learned and lessons shared, and I promise you there is plenty more to come from our team here at Intercom on this podcast. We've got a whole slew of great guests lined up, and you're also going to get a chance to hear from some really fresh voices here at Intercom with some really fresh perspectives. And with that, I'm going to hand the mic over to Intercom's VP of Engineering, Dara Curran, who's in our San Francisco office with Reddit's Nick Caldwell. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Nick, welcome to Inside Intercom. Really great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. To set up the conversation today, I thought it'd be useful for me and for everyone listening to get a brief rundown of your career today. You know, perhaps also talk about what initially got you into engineering and ultimately into fascinating world of engineering leadership. Yeah, sure. So I'll uh, I'll start with my current job. I'm VP of Engineering at Reddit. Been there for about two years, and. Um, the primary responsibility that I had there was growing the uh, engineering team from around 35 engineers. And today we have like 177 and um, building just tons and tons of, of interesting stuff there. Uh, biggest project I'm working on is the website redesign, but it also created a, a machine learning data science data engineering organization, ad platform, tons of stuff. I, I could go on and on. Uh, before that, I was a general manager at Microsoft. I had a, a 13-year career at Microsoft, started as an intern working on video games, uh, if you can believe it, then went into uh, natural language processing, machine learning, and um, ended uh, the tail end of my career there was working on business intelligence, a product called Power BI, which I became the general manager for. You know, how I got into engineering, really, you know, it's my father. Uh, I think way, way back when I was a kid, a uh, little kid, <laughs> three, four years old, my father brought home a, uh, a Tandy 1000 to replace his typewriter. 
And uh, I thought this thing was fascinating. I used to sit on his lap and type into the keyboard just uh, random stuff. I, you know, amazing I didn't break it. And uh, that kind of got me fascinated in computing early on. And then when I was around 10 years old, my dad bought me a book called Learn C++ in 12 Easy Lessons which was not an accurate title uh, by, <laughs> by any means. <laughs> and then from there on, I think um, it just kind of snowballed. I, I got fascinated with computers and, uh, you know, decided that was going to be my career. Getting into engineering leadership, that's a, that's a pretty complicated question because there's all different types of leadership. Um, you know, I became a manager pretty early on in my career. I was about three and a half, four years into my career when I became uh, a manager. I think part of that is is uh, I had really good relationships with uh, some sponsors who, uh, who saw a lot of potential in me. And then part of it was I just don't like being told what to do. <laughs> so I decided I was going to go on the, on the management track. It was a couple years after that that I would say I got you know, into a real leadership position. You know, managers and leaders are, are different. And, you know, I think leaders are, are people who take responsibility for what happens next. And I got my first real leadership opportunity uh, probably about five years into my career at a point where one of the teams I was on was uh, struggling with the product roadmap. And I decided rather than to complain about it to my manager and, and so forth, that I would kind of step up and take responsibility for helping uh, figure out the product roadmap. And that, that was a a project that led to my um, my first cross-functional team. It led to winning in a Microsoft internal prize. And it was it was like the really really the first time I uh, f- could call myself a leader instead of a manager. So I'll stop there. Yeah. yeah, like a lot of people maybe incorrectly map like leadership and management as one and the same thing. But of course, like leadership can whole set of behaviors or mindset that can happen independent of being a manager yeah um you mentioned like i'm sure it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek that you became a manager because you didn't like being told what to do <laughs> presumably you've got a about 177 people who don't like being told what to do on your team right now right no Maybe. no I, I i was a little bit tongue-in-cheek now reddit uh reddit i think with uh with our 170 engineers is great i think what was missing for me early on and why i make that joke is we needed direction and i do think like one thing that is a responsibility for leader whether or not you be a manager or not is that you have to provide a compelling vision for for people to follow and, and believe in and uh, i think at that early point in my career was i was really frustrated and i had to kind of step up because no one was providing that vision I think at Reddit, like, we, we don't really have that problem. If anything, we, we've got too much stuff to do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, sometimes it's a challenge to keep all the balls in the air at the same time. But there's no shortage of kind of uh, vision, and that translates into missions that we carry out day to day. Jumping back a bit and also to something you mentioned there around sponsors. I know you wrote a blog post recently about the impact of having sponsors made for you, particularly during your time at Microsoft. How do you capture the difference between mentorship and sponsorship and uh, why why do you advocate so much for the latter? Yeah, men- mentoring versus sponsorship is, is a piece of advice that I give to pretty much every person uh, within my organization. I think most people know what mentoring is. You know, you 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 find a a leader or someone you respect. You you grab coffee with them every so often. Uh, you kind of unload your problems on them, and they give you some some coaching and advice, which is useful. It's good for building your network. It's good for for getting advice. Sponsoring's uh, I think better in the following way. Sponsoring is instead of going to someone and getting advice, you go to them and they give you an opportunity. And typically sponsors are, are higher level people in the organization who are aware of opportunities and 
uh, really what they're doing for you is in meetings and conversations where those opportunities are being discussed, they're making sure that your name pops up and they're maybe pushing those opportunities your way. So in my career, I would say most of the major leaps uh, that, I, that I've taken or, you know, hops up the ladder or big opportunities that came my way came through sponsorship. Like people who I'd worked with before, or people who are aware of my reputation, who were in a room where an opportunity was being discussed and said, hey, you know, Nick would be a great person to try that out. And then, of course, as um, I think there is another key difference when you're being sponsored, you actually have to follow through. So, you know, I've done a lot of mentor-mentee relationships where sometimes – I think even you can even expect that your mentee isn't always going to take your advice because they're talking to multiple people. They want to get multiple perspectives. In a sponsor relationship, uh, there's a little bit more clear back and forth. Like if the person sponsors you to do something, you step up and say you want to do it. It's not only your reputation on the line, but the reputation of uh, whoever sponsored you. So you have to a little bit more burden to, to carry through and make sure you deliver. Do you think sponsorship is implicit in a manager relationship? No, I, I think uh, that that's not the case. I think great managers, of course, look out for you and want to make sure that, you, you know, your career interests are, are being considered. But managers aren't always fully aware of all the opportunities that a company might have, right? Uh, a manager is certainly aware of what they want you to do, <laughs> like if you're yeah. being managed. But, um, you know, your sponsor is going to come from the broader network. Other managers, directors, or executives, uh, there's a whole ocean of opportunity out there if you just kind of go look for it. And if you only limit your opportunity window to what your manager is giving you, you're going to be missing out on a, on a lot of things. Clearly what you described there sounds brilliant and everyone would benefit from that. What's your advice for people who don't yet have someone they identify as their sponsor. Yeah, get, getting a sponsor is pretty difficult. You know, I, I, I think it's a little more challenging to, to get than, uh, than a mentor. You start by getting a sponsor by simply doing great work. <laughs> like, you know, no, none of this comes, uh, no one will sponsor you if they aren't willing to take a bet on you. So like step one, make sure that your, your work is rock solid. You put uh, a lot of energy into high quality results. The second thing is you gain sponsors through networking, all right? And if you, you know, I, I think when I was at Microsoft, I, I made a conscious effort to spend some percentage of my week meeting people who weren't within my organization. The final thing is you have to be patient and wait for an opportunity, all right? So just in general, when you're networking, I, I think this is a, a truth that like the value of your network isn't always immediately apparent. But in looking back over my career, it's very clear that the value of my network kind of outweighs most other investments I made uh, in terms of my career advancement. So find people who would be willing to sponsor you that have a continuous stream of opportunities that they look at, impress them, and then be patient. And uh, when the opportunity arises, I guess the most critical thing is don't be afraid to jump. You know, I think if you want to advance uh, in your career, you've got to get uncomfortable and you've got to be ready to try new things. So when that opportunity presents itself, you know, jump at it and go. I think I could probably talk for there on this topic. We can keep um, going, man. I, I got a whole cup of coffee left here to uh, well, talk through. Uh, my own curiosity, like, was this a formal thing at Microsoft or, like, is, is there, like, a sponsor program? There, there was not a, like, formal sponsor program until very late in my Microsoft career because I, I think uh, over time people sort of wanted to formalize sponsoring and, uh, and they saw the value in it. Uh, early on it was, you know, simply me putting in the, the legwork myself. Later on, there was formal sponsoring for a really good reason, which was to help promote uh, diversity and inclusion. And I'm sure one other thing that we'll talk about later is Dev Color, which uh, is a, a charity I'm a board member of. But one, one of the goals of that charity is to promote leadership 
particularly uh, getting people of color into leadership positions. And if you want to make real tangible progress there, sponsorship is a, is a great method. I'd love to hear a little bit about what it was like when you walked in day one at Reddit. Like, what were some of the unexpected challenges that appeared? You know, what needed to change or improve right away? And, like, what did you pull from, like, your time at Microsoft versus what did you realize was, like, a, a totally new set of... Well, yeah, it was pretty fun. Like, my team at Microsoft, when I left, was around 300 people. And uh, when I joined Reddit, it was um, 35 people. And, and the request that had been given was to grow it really, really rapidly to about 100 engineers. So, you know, I think the first day, I I would say I would describe as, you know, it it was like a 35-person team being run with uh, maybe the tools that you would see from a a five-person team, like a really, really startup. So a lot of the engineering processes were missing. There were very few. I think there was one or two, but but almost no managers. There were a lot of people uh, calling themselves tech leads, but there were no managers. And then one other thing that was like, I think, frustrating on that first week there was like a video game set up with Smash Brothers, like right in front of where the executives sat. And people were just playing Smash Brothers all day. And uh, I, I think you can't really execute if people aren't motivated and excited about the company mission. So those are kind of three things that I was like, we really need to jump on on these. Like we got to get some managers in here if we want to scale. We got to figure out like how we're going to run our engineering processes in a, in a way that, you know, is going to grow with 100 people instead of using like kind of a five person process. And then, like, critically, you know, you're, you know, if, if you can't come up with a vision or a mission that's more interesting than uh, Smash Brothers, then you got a, <laughs> you got a big problem. So we spent some of that early, those early days just kind of crystallizing uh, what we wanted people to be working on and, and why it was exciting, et cetera. So what, what game did you replace Smash Brothers with? <laughs> well, I think that the, the uh, Smash Brothers playing like really died out. You know, people, if you walk in the office now, it's, it's, it's people just cranking away. But after hours, there's this game called uh, Killer Queen. Okay. I've never played it myself, but I'm told it's like a 12. Okay, yeah, he's played it. 12, <laughs> 12 player simultaneous video game that, you know, I'm told is like the, the funnest thing ever. <laughs> You mentioned there how you, you came from running an org of like 300 to a team of about 10% of that size. Were you like tempted or aware or sensitive to the idea of like applying what worked for Microsoft to a, in a different context? Were there examples where you like either took that approach and it worked or took that approach and it failed? I, I think, uh, you know, your natural assumption is like you take whatever works in your previous roles and you kind of use it as a template for what's next. I think... Um, I view the process more as a set of tools that I carry around with me, and I decide which tools are going to be deployed based on the on the situation. You know, so so coming in from a big company like Microsoft and trying to deploy those big company tools at Reddit on day one, I immediately knew that that was not going to work and did not uh, attempt that at all. I think that the best way, if you're coming into an organization, any organization, big or small, you know, if you're if you're in a leadership position. You need to spend like the first couple days or weeks just listening to the the problems that uh, the people on the team present to you. And then, you know, hopefully you can kind of dig around in your process tool bag and figure out the right tool for for the job and then maybe adapt that tool to fit the the situation. You know, so uh, at Reddit, I think the uh, the biggest immediate change I had to make was getting managers in place in a a company that really didn't have like a, a formal management career track. But I didn't just jump in and, you know, immediately like, you know, you're a manager, you're a manager, you're not. You know, I took time to talk about what management was, my philosophy, 
on what it meant and the value that it would add to the organization. And then over time, I'm also just listening to um, uh, the tech leads and they're describing their problems day to day. And I'm like, hey, you know, if we had a manager, this problem would go away. And, and over time, what you get is instead of me inserting the process and just saying, this is what we're going to do, it's more of an inception that people like realize that having this management layer is going to solve the problems for them. And that took about like, uh, I would say like a month, month and a half uh, from start to finish. And that, and that pattern repeats. You want people to tell you what they need and then you come up with the correct solution rather than just assuming you have a solution from the start. That's a, that's a great way to piss people off is just to land a ton of process on them that, that they've never been exposed to. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. You touched on some of this at start. You said that one of the major focuses for your team in the past year has been to make Reddit more welcoming, which resonates, but I'd love to hear is what that means in practice and like what the role of engineering is in helping accomplish that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so making Reddit more welcoming was like a, a theme for all of 2017, most of 2018. If you've never used Reddit, you know, it's pretty obvious what that means. From a user experience perspective, Reddit hadn't been updated for about eight to 10 years and um, kind of well-known for being a site that was kind of anchored in the past. The challenge with that, though, is it meant that new users to the site were having like a really, really bad experience. They couldn't figure out how to use the product. Uh, it just looked really, really dated. You know, so they'd come in like, oh, I don't get this, and turn right back around and, and go, which is unfortunate because you know, there's, a, there's lots of great content, lots of great communities on Reddit that if it were easier for people to understand and connect with, the site would grow and more people would participate. And that's what we really want to have happen. We want people to connect uh, with all the, the great communities that are on the platform. So practically speaking, what that has meant is over the last uh, year or so, we've been uh, revving Reddit and redoing the entire uh, user uh, interface. Uh, so it looks much, much cleaner right now. If you go to new.reddit.com, you'll see 
the new version of Reddit, which has some cool features like infinite scroll. Uh, there's a card view, which is a little bit more easy to consume. The challenge with, with all this, of course, is we already have a ton of existing Redditors, so we have to make sure that like their old experiences translate well into this new experience. So we try and make sure that works. You know, from an from a engineering perspective, you know, what I just implied was we had to redo the entire front-end architecture. We're now totally rewritten in uh, React. And then another, I, I think for me personally, really fun set of things that we're doing is in order to easily connect people with communities that might be interesting to them is we're, we're using data uh, to do that. So trying to understand, you know, uh, can, we, can we group communities by topic? When someone onboards to Reddit, can we give them recommendations? As they use the home feed, can we make it more personalized and, and customized to their interest? And all of that has meant that from an engineering perspective, we've gotten to set up a data engineering team, a data science team, a machine learning team, a search uh, and relevance team, which has all been really, really fun to do from, from the ground up. That, that sounds awesome. I, I love when you can get your kind of purpose clear enough that all those things make sense rather than bringing all those types of teams to the table without like knowing exactly what you want to do, what you want to achieve. Yeah. I'm also curious, like how you, again, with like a, such a large org, how you build a, a sense of connection and empathy for who are ultimately your customers, people you use Reddit day in, day out. Are there any particular things that you do there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, for building customer empathy, there, there's kind of two approaches. The, uh, the, the first, which I'll just to, to piggyback on the, the last thing I said, is the, the quantitative approach. You want to, in any product that you build, make sure telemetry and monitoring is baked in from the, from the start so that you understand which aspects uh, of your product are actually getting used. And um, you can you know, either uh, double down on those or decide whether or not they're the right thing to do or not. The second thing is more qualitative, and I think uh, developing customer empathy uh, oftentimes requires you to get down on the level with your customer and experience what they're experiencing. So at Reddit, uh, we do that in a couple different ways. I think on a very, very small scale, one thing we do is we invite people to the office and we do uh, user interviews. At a larger scale, though, Reddit already has like this gigantic community of uh, moderators. So if you think about how Reddit works, Reddit is a network of, of communities. Each of these communities is run by teams of moderators. And what we've done is we've created communities on Reddit where we can engage at a really, really high frequency rate with those moderators to get feedback on any new product uh, or feature that we build. So every time we do a, a feature, we make a, a post announcing what that feature is, uh, how to use it, how to test it. We'll put it into the uh, moderator community. And like al- almost instantly, like our moderators are not shy. They'll give us uh, feedback on how well we've done and we uh, adjust as needed. You can really see that with the uh, redesign. So if you go to the r slash redesign community on Reddit, You'll see all the way back since we started the redesign announcements for what we're shipping along with feedback, you know, both positive and negative about some of the features that we've, we've created. And, uh, you know, we just keep revving that as fast as we can until, you know, hopefully uh, people are, are 100% happy. <laughs> well, maybe 90%. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a great approach and like really appropriate also to the product you're building. Okay, so, you know, you touched on a bit of this earlier as well, but I'd love to get a little bit deeper into perhaps advice you would give to engineering leaders who are moving roles, moving companies, taking over responsibility for a team who they're not yet familiar with, and particularly how to like build the trust you need in order to lead that team into the future. Yeah, I think whenever you um, take over a team, the, the, I guess the, the first thing you have to do is decide that you're not going to just 
exert your willpower immediately. Like n- nothing beats listening, at least for the, like the first few days, to get a lay of the land and a, a sense of what matters to the people on the team, right? Uh, listening is like 90% of what you should be doing for that, that first week. Now, some engineering leaders though will tell you like, hey, you know, it's the first 30 days. But, you know, I work in a startup. 30 days is a long time in a startup. <laughs> so you, you can't I, – I would dispute that you should wait and do nothing for 30 days. I think you've got to – in a startup environment, the you know, clock's ticking. So about a week, I would say, listen, just make sure you understand, like, what matters that you should be spending your time on. You're going to bucket what you hear into two distinct groups. And uh, the first group, I would say, is things that are on fire that you need a bucket of water to put out immediately – and then the second group of, you know, things that aren't on fire and maybe you should spend your time building a fire department to address it in a more systematic fashion. For the, uh, the things that are on fire, you know, work with key leaders who have told you that these are problems to come up with like kind of immediate solutions. This has a, a great one-two punch of it. It helps you actually solve a problem really quickly. And two, it kind of gives you a sense of who you're going to be working with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you can build kind of trust uh, through actually doing things. For the second, you know, class of problems, which is going to be more a systematic approach, I think take your time and use your normal approaches to, toward getting buy-in with key stakeholders and then let the new systems roll out slowly uh, over time. I think the, the other thing when you're uh, new to a, uh, uh, an organization and uh, you implied this with, with the question, you do have to identify people who are going to be supportive. And then the tricky thing is you also want to identify people who aren't going to be supportive. With any organization, particularly like, uh, you know, one that's going to scale quickly, sometimes you find people who like just fundamentally don't like scale. There's plenty of folks out there who love like that small startup, you know, like 30 person feel. And they just aren't necessarily going to make it to like the, uh, the 300, you know, 500 person engineering organization. But there's also corresponding to that a bunch of people who are super excited to see that growth is about to happen. And, you know, find people who are going to be supportive. Use them as advocates and guinea pigs for any new processes that you might want to roll out and, uh, and grow that way. The people who you see as being like most comfortable in that small 30 person company, do you think that that's a changeable perspective or mindset? Oh, totally. I mean, I'll, I'll answer your question with a more abstract answer, which is that people can change over time, right? So if someone is only used to, to working at, at small startups, yeah, they, they totally can can learn over time how to operate with uh, more process, more dependencies, et cetera, et cetera. Those are totally trainable. And if you have good managers, good directors, they'll bring people along for the ride. Um, but the other thing is I always caution, like, um, sometimes people are just good in their particular lane. <laughs> and you, you want to be careful as a manager not to force people out of their lane unnecessarily. You know, if, if someone's really, really strong at a particular skill or in a particular team size, you know, scope, there's always a risk to pull them out of that. And I would strongly make sure that, like, people's interests and passion are lined up with what you are trying to get them to do as a manager. And if you can get that intersection then you get like the maximum output. But if you're for, always trying to pull people uh, away from what they're naturally inclined to do or things that they don't want to learn, you're always going to be kind of fighting an uphill battle. And as a manager, you have to kind of recognize that might be better for that person to find a different opportunity. Like it'd be better for them, be better for your team, et cetera. Absolutely. I'm real strong advocate of trying to align that passion with what's impactful for the company you choose to be part of. Yeah, the best managers, like, they they all get that. Like, yeah. the, the you know, new managers, it's more like, oh, I'll just, I'll make more good, you know, people. if people can code better, that'd be great. If uh, if I can learn how to run a Jira board. But I think 
the best managers understand that it's like aligning people's passion with what the with what the business needs, which, right? which ties yeah. real nice back to the idea of sponsorship too. Yeah, like yeah, a, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Okay, cool. So, next question is an interesting one that kind of probably is relevant to any any company that's gone through the type of growth in an engineering team that Reddit have. I think when uh, you mentioned like when you joined, there was basically no engineering management practice there. You introduced that. Uh, but you did so by balancing both like hiring and growing folks internally. I'd love to understand like your kind of thought process and approach there. Yeah, I think you mean like how did uh, we decide who was going to be the manager? <laughs> well, that's, that's, yeah. that's a huge part of it. Or, or yeah. even even deciding like presumably none of those people had been managers before. Yeah, so you're, you're like, is it even a good approach to do that? Like surely if you want to introduce management, you want to get all the like battle-hardened managers in there. Right? <laughs> Maybe, I, you know, I, I think... Whenever you're building an organization, I think it's 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 always best to to kind of look within first before you bring in uh, folks who are coming in from the outside. There's lots of different reasons for that I could go into, um, but I think the high order bit there is you want to kind of preserve the company culture. And every time you bring in a new leader from from outside, uh, you're going to change the culture up a little bit. So at Reddit, you know, I wanted to look inside first. You know, even though we had 35 people, you know, there weren't a lot of managers, but it was clear to me that there were a lot of people who exhibited leadership and could be kind of guided toward a management track. There were also a lot of these folks who were more, uh, they wanted to be uh, individual contributors and maybe uh, go up an architect track. The concept that I introduced was the idea that you could climb the ranks as an architect or climb the ranks as a manager. So the first, within the first couple weeks, you know, I'm doing one-on-ones with all these folks and trying to figure out like what their career aspirations are. I asked them questions that would kind of lead me to understand which of these leadership tracks they would uh, be best suited toward, right? So engineering managers, I kind of look for people who like to ship on a predictable schedule, people who enjoy investing their time in others, coaching and mentoring, people who would be interested in uh, hiring because we had to hire a lot of, uh, of folks. And then you can you can identify uh, architects. Uh, you know, these are, are, are folks who are very, very interested in the long-term health of the code base. They may talk your ear off about like Kubernetes or some or Erlang or <laughs> some, some, some very, you know, uh, niche or interesting technical project. And I started to kind of tease these folks apart. And uh, for the folks who I identified as being more uh, managerial in nature, I did one-on-one uh, training at first and then group training later with what I thought were the, the basics and fundamental requirements of being a good manager. And that's on the execution side, being able to deliver, you know, high-quality software in a predictable schedule. And on the people side, understanding that you've got to attract, retain, and develop uh, strong talent. And I think those are the fundamentals of management. On the architect side, you know, we talked about how to manage and monitor tech debt, uh, how to develop uh, technical strategy, et cetera. Now, in terms of scaling, right, so that gave me, like, kind of the, the first group of people. You know, I had to train all these folks to, uh, to try and hire more engineers. And then also, if you ever find yourself in a, a situation where you need to scale this rapidly, you do eventually have to hire in external folks. But I only did that after we had a great system of execution in place, uh, after I'd also felt that the company culture would sustain bringing in uh, more people from the outside. Interesting. Your approach of having that like line of questioning to help explore is interesting. Do you get many people who are like, I want to do both? <laughs> Well, you know, you, I think early on everyone is in that situation. That's kind of that's kind of I think common. Um, most companies have this role called tech lead, which, if we're being honest, like tech lead is kind of this 
you know, proto position where you have some management responsibilities, some technical and architectural responsibilities. You're kind of like, you know, halfway between two worlds. Uh, we had that at Microsoft. I, I talked to a lot of different companies. It seems to be really, really common. And we're no different at Reddit. You know, my preference, though, is rather than leave people in that kind of limbo state, I like to get them into the tract that they want to experiment with as quickly as possible. And, you know, if it works, great. You know, if not, you can always switch. It's, you know, it's not yeah. like, you know, it's not it's like not you make one. one yeah, it's not a one way switch. <laughs> like you, you can make a lot of different uh, bets on yourself in tech, particularly nowadays and particularly in Silicon Valley. Right. Speaking of bets, I understand that a big part of Reddit's engineering culture is around like freedom and experimentation and a particular ritual called like snooze days. <laughs> yeah. Can you, can you explain a little bit about the thought behind these and perhaps some of like the most interesting things that have come out of them? Yeah, yeah. So Snooze Day, uh, I won't take credit for starting it at, at Reddit. Snooze Day was actually started by the original Reddit CTO, uh, Marty Wiener. And the idea there was to give Snooze or Reddit employees an opportunity of creative freedom. They could literally explore uh, any engineering or non-engineering topic they wanted for a day every couple weeks. And when I joined, I kind of saw this biweekly ritual and I thought, this is great culturally because it's allowing people to, to take a lot of creative risks. But, you know, me being someone who likes to put process on things, I guess, decided that like one day a week didn't really give people enough time to take a full swing at some of these uh, ideas. So uh, Marty and I worked together and we modified Snooze Day, made it a few days longer, added themes, added prizes. And um, now it's kind of become an institution. Now it's actually a whole a whole week long. One's coming up next week, in, in fact. And um, we've got five different prizes. Very typically nowadays, the projects that come out of Snooze Week will get shipped into full production. So we get a lot of great value out of that. And the executive team also seeds the team with ideas. Uh, so last time around, uh, the theme was quality. This time around, the theme is going to be efficiency. Uh, so hopefully we'll get some, some great cost-saving projects uh, that come out of Snooze Week. You know, favorite projects, it's hard. Like, there's so much creativity that comes out of that. It's hard to, to pick one. I think uh, I'll, I'll pick a sampling. Uh, we were talking about Killer Queen a while back. So the team, Reddit really loves this game, and they were asking us to buy one for the office. It turns out this game costs like $15,000. And uh, we weren't willing to spend 15 grand on it. So during one of the snooze weeks, team got together and made a game called Killer Snoo. It is basically a clone of Killer Queen with all of the characters replaced with like uh, Steve Huffman, the CEO, Alexis Ohaney, <laughs> co-founder, and then different uh, Reddit employees. And it's like a 12-player game. It's, it's really awesome. You know, there's really practical ones. You know, we had someone do uh, add uh, performance monitoring to our continuous uh, integration, continuous delivery pipeline. That's shipped to production. There's a really good one called Reddit Rabbit Hole, where the idea was that essentially for any given post you would be on on Reddit, we would find the next most addicting post so that you would just fall into Reddit and never get out of the rabbit hole. And that one, that one's actually in experimentation now. I think it's going to ship. It, it does pretty well. But the idea here, though, is, you know, you give a couple hundred people free reign to come up with any idea they want. Sometimes you'll get games, and sometimes you'll get things that, like, add immediate value to our end users, and that's great, too. But the intent, though, is, is really creative freedom. We've had people use it for things that weren't really even code, like, you know, pie baking contest <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, starting a gardening club was another one. So, you know, I, I think that that creative culture lends itself to a lot of different outcomes. Sweet. I love all of that. I, I, we've got a 
fairly nascent ritual, which we call Wiggle Week, which has the same, very same intent. But I feel like there's probably Wiggle some week. ideas cool. we can steal from uh, Snooze. To wrap up, uh, you're wearing a great T-shirt that I, I'd love to talk a little about, Dev Color. And you've also recently created a scholarship program called Color Code. And like you mentioned, are on the board of Dev Color. Can you tell me and our listeners what those initiatives are about? Yeah, totally. Uh, so to give some quick backstory, you know, I'd been at, at Microsoft for 13 years and uh, Microsoft in Seattle. And, you know, I was kind of one of the few black engineers I would see day to day. You would really, really see very few other people of, of color on campus. And uh, that was kind of frustrating. I was in an exec layer. I, I think the whole time I was there, I don't, I don't remember seeing any other black tech execs, which was really frustrating. But I was there for a long time, and I had been trying uh, at Microsoft for so long to change the, the numbers, both uh, in terms of people of color and, and women in tech. Uh, we made progress on women in tech, but trying to get uh, people of color up into Seattle was always a challenge. Now, when I moved down to San Francisco, though, within the first two weeks of being in San Francisco, I was invited to Dev Color. Dev Color is a nonprofit group whose uh, purpose is to promote leadership uh, for people of color in the tech industry. And I attended one of their first events, and it was 300 other black people in one room. They were all in tech. They were from all age ranges, boot camp, all the way up to uh, senior executives. And I was just kind of blown away by this. I've never seen anything like it in my career. And it really kind of gave me hope, you know, in San Francisco in a way, it gave me hope that I could really make a difference if I, uh, if I put my time in, that there were enough people in the area, enough motivation, enough people who wanted to, to hustle and learn that I could really help uh, make a difference. So to answer your question, uh, Color Code is a, a scholarship fund that my wife and I started uh, about a year and a half ago because we both shared this excitement. And uh, it's a small fund. It comes out of just our own money and our, you know, you know small donations. And uh, we pick a, a leader that we think has a lot of potential and we'll put them through training courses or give them mentoring, et cetera. And we've done that with a, a few people uh, over the last year. Dev Color, though, is a much larger organization. And I highly encourage people who are interested in uh, specifically like finding ways to promote leadership for people of color to look at this, this organization. I joined the, the board a few months back. And um, the reason for that is they want it as the organization scales, they wanted people who have, you know, run larger organizations you know, I mentioned that when I joined, it was 300 people. I think they've since uh, broken through 500, the 500 person barrier and now are expanding to, to multiple cities. You know, DevColor is different from other or other boot camps that you might have heard about. It's, it is just not a boot camp. Uh, boot camps are about getting people in at the entry level. And DevColor is really about uh, getting them into positions of leadership. And, uh, and I think that's a, a key difference and a key evolution in, um, you know, diversity and inclusion. Are there like sensible ways that folks who are interested can get involved and help that initiative? Yeah, absolutely. So if you go to uh, devcolor.org and you want to join, there's a, a sign-up sheet there. I, I believe that they do sign-ups every three to four months. Uh, so it's not, you know, you can join anytime, but there, there'll be a call for sign-ups. You do have to, if you want to join, you know, A, have the initiative to join, but B, there's a uh, kind of a what I would, would call a lean-in circle that you join. It's, a, uh, you know, the first experience you'll get uh, in Dev Color is joining a squad of other people who will kind of tell you what goals they have for their careers. And your responsibility is to meet with them once a month uh, to talk about your progress toward those goals. And that's kind of like the 
the entry requirement for getting into DevColor, to show that you're willing to put the time and commitment in to help others uh, as well as yourself. If you would like to sponsor, I'm sure you can call <laughs> anytime. Just just shoot me an email <laughs> and uh, hit me on LinkedIn. Uh, we are looking for sponsors. If you sponsor DevColor, you will obviously get to have your folks in your company join the organization. But we also have training programs for, you know, maybe people who aren't person of color, but just want to, to learn about how they can make a difference. I think one philosophy uh, that I agree with is that if you talk about these issues in a safe environment, you'll make more progress. And I, I think one challenge that companies have nowadays is they can be a little bit afraid to talk about their diversity and inclusion initiatives publicly and honestly. And uh, with DevColor, you know, we do have, you know, closed door environment where you can come and bring your honest questions uh, and concerns, meet with other leaders who are trying to promote DNI in their organizations and just, you know, talk about what works and, and what doesn't without worrying about your initiative showing up on, uh, you know, Business Insider or TechCrunch or something like that. Because I, I think that Talking about these these things and what works and what doesn't is a is a, a great way to continue making forward progress. Absolutely, let's uh, wrap up there. It's been a fantastic oh. uh, conversation. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes.